2: There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity.
3: I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability.
2: Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker.
5: Welcome to the programme today. So the backlash for Rishi Sunak's windfall tax is one of the top stories on the Bloomberg this morning. I know that you um, have spoken to Total Energies in the past, but I think it's quite fascinating. They're talking now about cutting
4: investment in the North Sea. Yeah, when I was at the CBI conference in Birmingham, I spoke to David Bunch, the chairman of Shell's UK operations, and he said that Shell's going to have to reassess its 25%, Billion pounds worth of investments in the UK because of the expanded windfall tax, which I thought Caroline was quite odd, given that only months before Shell was begging to be pay more tax.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is pretty important. So the energy profits levy that the government brought in, it's gone up to thirty-five percent. So now you're starting, you know, the rubber meets the road. Businesses starting to actually react to this big change in policy. So look, that's sort of one of the big stories. But also we have to talk about the labour in Chester and the advent calendar of strike action. Bloomberg's Joe Mays is going to join us on both those subjects.
4: Yeah, is it really a win for Keir Starmer when this seat has been pointing Labour for a long time? It's no Tiverton, really.
5: No, absolutely. Okay, we'll get on to that in a minute. But firstly, green taxonomy... I know, don't squeal in horror at that phrase. It's a difficult one, but let's explain. Britain announced two years ago that we would develop a green taxonomy following in the footsteps of the European Union's efforts. Basically, the idea is to provide a framework for what counts as environmentally sustainable investments. The idea is meant to help tackle greenwashing and boost the cash that goes into Projects to alleviate climate change. But three prime ministers in a year means that when we get the UK plan and actually what shape it takes we still don't know an informal grouping of MPs the all-party parliamentary group on ESG has now published a report and Bloomberg has written it up on what they think should and shouldn't be in this green taxonomy plan and I'm pleased to say that we have the chair of the group Alexander Stafford who is conservative MP for Rother Valley with us to discuss Alexander good morning good morning So this is really interesting. I mean, almost every country around the world is trying to bring in its own uh, green taxonomy. You say that here in the UK, the government shouldn't include things like gas and nuclear. Solar, Solar panels tick. Yes. Hydroelectric dams. Yes. All right with that, but not with gas and nuclear. Why not?
2: I think the first, most important thing I've got to say is that we needed the green taxonomy out ages ago. We've lost the first move advantage, but what we can have in the UK is what I call the second move advantage, i.e. we can learn from taxonomies already out there, like the EU's for instance, and actually make them better. And I think the EU has drop the ball, partly because of all the sort of horse trading with uh, such a large group of nations, on, on things about what is green and what is not green. I think it's very uh, tough to put in something like gas as a as a green, uh, in a green taxonomy, something you want to keep as a taxonomy forevermore, uh, when we're going to want net zero and a green future. I think if you have uh, aspects like uh, uh, natural gas in it, you, you risk to undermine the credibility of what it means to be green and undermine consumer investor confidence.
4: But Alexander, I was just reporting on your city minister, uh, Andrew Griffith, telling us he wants a Brexit Big Bang 2.0, a deregulatory agenda. How does that add up with tougher standards on ESG?
2: Well, I think it matches very nicely with it. We do need that bigger bang for the city. But what we want to do is like the whole world is going net zero. We need to get there quickly. We are the world's financial capital uh, where we lead other countries follow. And I think having a robust green taxonomy means that we can actually uh, lead the way in what we're doing and other countries come with us. This will make put us on the map as the leading finan- green financial centre of the world. But we must get it right. If we don't and we fairly go in like the EU's footsteps, we're not going to have any advantage. We won't be the green financial capital of the world. But if we do get this right, we can have a really big impact both for the economy but also for the environment.
5: I wonder how much support you detect within your Conservative Party for this. I mean, there's still a really vocal group of MPs within the Tories who blame green energy policies for the energy crisis. It's hard to call the Conservatives the party of of green.
2: Well, I think that's not exactly true. There are going to be a few loud voices who are always going to sort of dinosaurs who want to go back to, back, back to how it used to be. But the majority of the Conservative Party environment, the Conservative Environment network, for instance, is, is one of the largest largest caucuses, as we've seen at the moment with the current uh, amendment, Simon Clark's amendment on uh, onshore wind. majority of the party seems to want to go to this green future. And what I think is very important is for when we all, the whole world is going green, we get best advantages from it. And as we are the financial capital of the world, if we get the green finance right, with a robust taxonomy, then we can have leverage far bigger financial advantages for the UK. It's a win win for us and a win win for the environment.
4: And Alexandra, I mean net zero was one of the central pillars of Boris Johnson's election manifesto, but Rishi Sunak didn't even plan to go to COP in the beginning, which really is symbolic. I, I have to wonder how much climate is Rishi Sunak's priority.
2: Well, I mean, look at look what he's done. Look uh, in the sense that he issued the the UK's green bonds a couple of years ago, which was an overwhelming success. So much so that when uh, the minister was actually at COP this year, uh, we were told that Egypt and, Egypt and a few other countries followed the green bond issuance because of what the UK did. I think it's clear with Rishi, he wants to make sure that we have a robust green future, but also a financially stable future. And I believe with a, with a robust green taxonomy, we'd have that huge economic advantage. We've moved on from the days of, I don't know, of sort of eating tofu and sitting in caves as the green movement is seen. And actually, the green movement now is seen as a forward-thinking financially literate, robust, good business as well. And that's so important.
5: Yeah, okay. Um, In terms of net zero, though, I think uh, there was a kind of real boost, wasn't there, from from Glasgow, from COP26. But then... um, when it came to a year later at COP27, the UK has set up these big picture goals in terms of reaching net zero, but actually the pathway to get there is still not very clear. And most of the critics around around this issue say that actually in the last 12 months, one COP to the next, the UK didn't move very fast. And, and that's quite problematic, isn't it? That actually sometimes, you know... The po- the big policy ideas and the big goal may be there, but the interim goals are not, and the and the realistic pathway to reaching net zero is still not there in the UK.
2: Well, I think COP to, uh, the COP last year was one of those moments of change where we really got put finance at the heart of climate change and dealing with climate change, and I think that was one of the, the best, biggest success uh, of, of last COP with the TCFD. Obviously, we need to make sure our targets are robust and we actually work on them. We can't just allow it to to slip. But there's more to be done. We've We've got to be honest about this. Going to net zero is not an easy task, especially against the headwinds, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in the financial system, what's going on with the energy crisis. But we need to have more robust targets. And that is why a green taxonomy and a robust green taxonomy is so important. So we can actually cut through the chaff and actually understand what we want to do.
4: And we've found out this morning that Florida is going to pull $2 billion of assets from BlackRock over ESG. I wonder whether there's a danger of reactionary forces like in Florida.
2: Well, I think obviously the American situation is very, very different. Obviously, it's more state led uh, and there's quite a divergence along the political class in America. So it seems I don't see any of that divergence really in, in the UK. I think it's actually something which unites you know, Conservative Party, the Labour Party, little Democrats about getting this uh, this done, getting the safeguards on it. So there's always going to be a few naysayers. But what we hear from the rest of the community and from consumers, is they want robust green products to invest in. And that's one of the big issues. At the moment, you can't. nobody knows what anything could be green. It leads to danger of greenwashing. Once we have a robust green taxonomy, then we know exactly what products are green. And that's going to unlock hundreds of billions of pounds in the UK, proper green investments. But equally, if you get it wrong, and companies keep calling themselves green, and they're actually not particularly green, it's going to undermine the market completely and undermine consumer confidence. Mm -hmm. And that will lead to more people pulling money out of green funds.
5: Well, I mean, the the problem with that is that that's, you know, that's already sort of happening. Investors are increasingly sceptical about ESG investing, not just because there are lots of different rules. The rules aren't very clear around the world about what qualifies as ESG. Um, uh, The Association of Investment Companies says that actually a lot of fund managers are increasingly now sceptical about ESG. So actually, you know, this... This idea is it is a great idea for London to be the green centre of the world, but even that is kind of it's becoming a far more nuanced argument, isn't
2: it? Well that's the, exactly the problem. ESG, frankly, is still the buzzword, but people when they look at some funds, every fund seems to be leaving themselves as green or ESG compliant without actually having those robust metrics or robust taxonomy to actually make things green. There's too much of that sort of chaff at the moment out there. And what is centrally important is if you want to do this, and the only way we okay. can get to net zero properly is if you green the financial system, is have those products that people have the confidence in. And so this yeah. uh, green taxonomy is all about that confidence to know people, where people know where their money is going.
5: Alexandra, just lastly, when do you think we're actually going to get the UK green taxonomy, the kind of government structure on, on this?
2: Well, that is the big, thats a million-dollar question. <laughs> and the longer, we, the longer we wait, the less, frankly, relevant the UK is going to, going to have. And I think about this 30 green taxonomies, or at the moment being uh, put together by other countries. We need to get it done quickly, uh, so that we can actually take part of that conversation. Obviously, we've had the disruption in the last few months with change of governments. Uh, but I had a—I raised this in Parliament only a couple of days ago because we need to get this done. And the minister promised me it'll be soon. But uh, how soon is soon? That we we'll have like- to wait and see.
4: Alexander, just before you go, I've got to ask you, while we've been on air, the former UK Chancellor Sajid Javid has announced that he's standing down as an MP before the next election. He's adding his name to a growing list. It does seem uh, that the anxiety is growing within your party ahead of the next election. Uh, Will there be more to follow?
2: Well, I think... I think it's off the top of my head. I think he's now the 10th or 11th Conservative MP who said he's going to stand down. At the moment, Labour have had 13 MPs saying they're going to stand down. There's always a natural churn, especially when there's boundary changes. and A lot of uh, colleagues, their seats are changing or they're being abolished. Uh, There's always a natural sort of churn coming up ahead of election. As I'm sure you know, the Conservative Party has asked all MPs to submit by uh, Monday whether you want to stand again. So this is basically the time it's going to be announced. But there's always that churn and that's no bad thing sometimes.
5: No bad thing. OK. Um, natural churn rather than fear of the next election.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think there's a fear of the next general election. I said some uh, colleagues seats are changing. Some colleagues have been in Parliament. Sajid has been uh, in Parliament for many years. I don't know the reasons for him stepping down. But his seat, as I'm sure you know, is a very good, solid Conservative seat. So it's not like he's worried about that, I'm sure. Uh, I just think it's, it's time for change. The more Labour MPs have announced they're standing down the Tory MPs at the moment. So I don't see this as an issue at all. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
5: Now, Britain faces strikes every day this month in the run-up to Christmas. Trade union leaders are increasing their threats to actually coordinate the industrial action and therefore cause maximum disruption in their quest for higher wages. Labour has accused ministers of not negotiating with unions to prevent all of the NHS
4: strikes. And Shadow International Trade Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons claims the government isn't even talking to union bosses.
2: It's been the secretaries of state for health that haven't been engaging around the negotiating table. That's where the fault lies for not actually seeking to find a resolution to these matters. But there's still time.
4: Meanwhile, workers from the rail network, buses, postal service, health sector and schools are among those staging workouts amid high inflation and government plans to rein in public spending.
5: Well, joining us now to discuss this, plus all of the rest of the political news today, Bloomberg's UK government, Treasury and Brexit reporter, Joe Mays. The Brexit bit will come clear later. But Joe Mays, on this strike action, uh, Lizzie Burden had the kind of advent calendar of strikes. It's really grim. What do you think is the likelihood of a general strike?
6: It is certainly, Grim, yes. I think the transport strikes are perhaps most damaging for the economy. We know we're going into this very busy Christmas period. Normally, you know, businesses, hospitality businesses will make most of their money in this period. So that's why it's so painful to them that this disruption is happening. In terms of a general strike, you know, it is quite possible. I mean, we already have so much disruption across sectors and we're just seeing the kind of power that industrial action has as in the 1980s, pushing for wage demands. And there's no sense of it going away, and no sense of the government being on top of it. So, yeah, it, it is a likely prospect.
4: Yeah, and there are reports that this could cost the economy more than £1.7 billion. But ministers have called for the rail union to be selfless and suspend the strike action over Christmas. That doesn't seem likely, does it? Who do you think is going to blink first, the government or the unions?
6: Yeah, I don't see the unions blinking in that way. You know, They, they know they have leverage here. You know, this is how industrial disputes work. You, know, you, you pick your moments for... You know, inflict maximum pain and, and use that as leverage to get the best wage demands that you can. And, and you're right in terms of hospitality businesses, you know, they had two years effectively of lost sales because of COVID. They, they were hoping this would be the year that they'd make that money back. But it looks like, no, I mean, I'm trying to plan my Christmas parties and most of them I can't get to because of train strikes. So yeah, it's, it's certainly causing disruption
4: very
5: popular Joe <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, Joe Mace also
1: humble
5: also Joe Mace who's actually on foot walking to Westminster as he speaks to us for UK politics so thanks so much for doing that look the other thing though to um, ask you about can you settle this for me Joe once and for all the argument between Mick Lynch and the transport secretary about who is in charge of actually agreeing pay deals with with the rail strikers uh, who does have the kind of final say, as it were, in your view?
6: So the, the transport secretary always says that they're not directly involved in the talks and that they're, they're at a kind of arm's length to it. I always find that slightly odd and that they literally are the secretary of state and you would have thought, you know, they can have ultimate say. So I think it's a bit of politics from the minister's side to say, look, you know, I can't actually affect things you know, they can and that they are ultimately in charge, but that they choose to have this arm's length kind of relationship so they can kind of have a kind of deniability about what's going on. So, yeah, I think that that, that's the real state of play.
4: And Joe, while we've been on air, the former UK Chancellor Sajid Javid has said that he's standing down as an MP at the next election. So adding to the list of MPs from both parties, I should say, uh, who are doing so. But we were speaking to the MP Alexander Stafford uh, earlier in the programme and he said this is just natural change and it's what happens before an election. Is that too generous or is this a case of rats leaving the ship?
6: It, it, it's natural that after 12 years of the Tories in power you expect many of them to be wanting to stand down but it's also the case that as you kind of implicitly uh, referenced this, there's a massive poll deficit many of them want to stand down with dignity now rather than lose their seats as a general election and also helps in terms of the jobs market if you're looking to get a, a new career don't, you don't want to be part of the big massive MPs who lose their seats at an election if you get in now you can kind of line things up for the future so yeah it's a bit of both
5: okay a bit of both all right um in that case what did you make of the chester by-election i mean it was largely expected that labor would hold on to that seat but then there's all the reading into you know how much the margin by which samantha dixon actually won
6: yes i think that result for me just confirms that the national polling is pretty accurate right now and it is the case that labor do have that strong lead you know you you wouldn't be too devastated if you're a Conservative seeing that because you know that, you know, there's still some time to go until an election. The whole point of the plan at the moment is you know steady the ship, hope the economy improves and that can still happen. So you wouldn't you'd never be expected to win a seat by Chester right now. So it's not kind of too doomsday for the Conservatives, but it does confirm what we know now, which is, yes, they are very much behind in the polls. And there's a big job to do for Sunak to turn that
4: around. It does seem, though, that it'll put some wind in Starmer's sails. He, at Prime Minister's Questions this week, seemed to be. His lines seemed to be far more developed than the Conservatives. He's looking pretty comfortable, given that he's been at the dispatch Box far, far longer than Rishi Sunak now. Can Sunak catch up in time for an election?
6: I think so much depends on that economic picture and whether it does improve into next year. Because there's a world in which it does, and insofar as if the Russia war in ukraine perhaps you know abates faster than we expected and energy prices come down inflation comes down sunak can then claim look my plan worked if that doesn't happen you, you can't really see a route where they they can overturn that massive deficit so you know it, it's 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 all about it's all about the economic context for me and um and yeah that's what sunak has to hope improves
5: yeah i mean having said that um i thought that you know, the, the tone from some of the political coverage of late has been, you know, every day that is quiet, that is not panic stricken, is effectively a win for Sunak. Is that sort of where we're at going into year end? Yeah, I, I think I think
6: that's true. I think the Sunak government is definitely happy with that kind of calm, but there's a risk nevertheless there. It can't go on for too long because it has to be the case the government seems to be doing something. You know, we saw them pull the votes on planning, on on house-building targets. We saw them, they're facing a lot of pressure over onshore wind, that's been pushed back. So he can't be a kind of paralysed, not doing anything government for for too long because the vote the electorate will notice and, and that will be damaging for them. So yeah, for now, nice to have a steady ship, but he'll want to get some momentum into the new year.
4: And Joe, Caroline promised that we'd talk about Brexit. It is the most controversial part of your title. Um, but there's reportedly significant improvement in the relations between the EU and the UK. Uh, that a landing zone in the Brexit negotiations is possible in the next few weeks. This is according to Ireland's foreign minister. But there haven't been any major breakthroughs on the Northern Ireland protocol. So where are we at this point? Is this really a. a step forward?
6: Yeah I think we're in the world of you know technical talks going on in the background so no public spats or disputes and that kind of sign, sound of silence is often a good thing in these kind of talks it means we are getting somewhere but the problem is there are still big political issues such as whether the European Court of Justice should have you know governance over Northern Ireland we, we don't know if the UK is willing to concede on those, that big political point and until we get an answer to that you know, this kind of progress is nice, but we haven't got that final, you know, final breakthrough, which would mean we get to a deal. So, you know, it feels kind of good, but we're certainly not there yet.
5: I wonder also, Joe, what you make of this, um, this idea that there's been a kind of conspiracy of silence around the impact of Brexit on the UK economy. I mean, that does feel like it's started to crack in the last few months. That There is, OK, we're, we're through the pandemic. There aren't other, yes, we still have an energy crisis, but the actually the toll of Brexit is becoming clearer, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think it is. I think
6: a couple of interesting things have happened. So I think that when Liz Truss and Boris Johnson as prime ministers, they were very happy to kind of talk in in very buoyant terms about the positive effects of Brexit and often, you know, uh, stretching the facts they might be talking to. And Richard Sunak doesn't seem to be as willing to do that. He's kind of much more kind of sober in that regard. And also we have Jeremy Hunt now as chancellor, who is quite realistic about the effects. But there's been a very explicit shift to a narrative of, Brexit is a longer term economic project and almost a concession that there have been short term negative effects, but it will ultimately be worth it. And in the past, the British government wasn't even willing to acknowledge short term negative effects. but Now they are. Uh, and but they still think. Um, because of that.
4: But there was a lot of suspicion around number 11 Downing Street when the Sunday Times reported that the government was considering a Swiss-style deal, questions about whether Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, uh, was still a closet Remainer having voted to remain in the EU in 2016. I wonder where that goes. Is it just that Rishi Sunak's managed to completely stamp out um, any question over whether there's a Remainer spirit in the party? Because originally he he was um, hope that lots of business leaders hoped that he would be pragmatic on Brexit, but then, especially in the past couple of weeks, he's made it as, as clear as day that he's uh, a passionate Brexiter.
6: Yeah, there was such a backlash, I think, to that Sunday Times story that I think it spooks the Sunak government to a certain extent, so to the point where, as you say, he, he kind of really stressed his Brexit credentials. You had Jeremy Hunt in front of the Treasury Committee really stepping back from. From, from the, the, the tone of that Sunday Times piece of saying, look, you know, we're not going to be back in the single market. We're not going back in the customs union, but we do want to improve the relationship. But we're not going to specify in what ways. But yeah, uh, we have that stance. So, yeah, I mean, the Sunac government knows it's still kind of vulnerable in terms of political support within its own party. So it's having to tread very carefully. Uh, yeah, he, he can't really afford to do much else at this point.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the, the Labour perspective on Brexit is still, you know, it's still really tricky that they've not broken um, out in terms of yeah any change to their Brexit stance.
6: Yes, I mean, they, the view internally in the Labour Party is still that we cannot ever afford to be seen as weaker on Brexit than the Tory party. They, they're still very burnt by the 2019 general election experience. And as a result, they are, wanting a very tough stance. And, and we're not, we're, I, I don't expect that's to change until at least after the next election.
4: Okay, Bloomberg's Joe Mays, government, treasury and Brexit reporter, bringing us all the latest from strikes to Brexit to Christmas. To and, Northern and she did Ireland. it all whilst on foot. On the way around, to West the Westminster, way to probably on the way to a party tonight. He's very popular. Ooh, ah, uh, well,
5: have a lovely time. <laughs> I mean, yes, I hope you do have a nice party because actually, <clears throat> you know, the Christmas period's not looking that easy. The strike action, apparently, Black Friday footfall absolutely plunged. So people didn't buy as much as we thought. And
4: they're not helping themselves, Caroline, because they're turning the lights off for part of it, aren't they? On is it on Oxford Street? That's helping? yeah. Oxford Street's only going to put the Christmas
5: lights on for eight hours a day. We've still got the massive Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square. But how are we going to have the
4: cheer? We need lights, Caroline.
5: Yeah, we do. I do think. I think I was i was a bit chagrined to learn that the lights wouldn't be on for that long. But hey-ho, we have to make do. Um, and we'll make do with being back next week, of course. So that's it for us today. If you did like the programme, don't forget to give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever
4: you listen. This episode was hosted by Caroline Hepker and me, Lizzie Burden. It was produced by the audio engineer, John Wasman. This is Bloomberg.
3: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You
1: know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th